You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. In Psalm in Psalm 33, uh, we find here commands for us to sing praise to God. It's a little ironic. God commands us to sing to Him. And uh, most of the psalm, that's how it begins in verses 1, one to 3, sing praise to God. But then the rest of the psalm, most of the psalm from verses 4 to 19, we see why we ought to sing praise to God. And uh, in the reasons for why we should sing praise to God, we basically see three categories. And these three categories are the three points of the sermon. Number one, we sing praise to God because of his creative word, verses 4 to 9. Number two, we sing praise to God because of his mighty wisdom, verses 10 to 12. And then thirdly, we sing praise to God because of his sovereign care, verses 13 to 19. And what we're going to do today in the sermon is just walk through the text and look at each of these points, which basically altogether, this amounts to us meditating on God and his work. This, this is who God is and what God has done what God does. And when this truth of who God is and what he does, when that is set before our minds and our hearts, it, it compels us to praise him, right? It compels us to praise God so much so that we don't really need the command to praise God because we, we know we want to praise him because he's worthy of praise. It's obvious that such a God deserves our praise. We've been compelled. So my hope as we walk through Psalm 33 is that, that that compelling work would happen to us. So the psalm begins, sing praise to God. By the end of it, I want you, I want us to be compelled by who God is to praise him without being told to. All right, let me, let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father in heaven, Father, we ask that you would do that work in us by the power of your spirit, that you would give us this morning a fresh vision of you and that you would lead our hearts and our mouths to praise you, to worship you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first point here is sing praise to God because of his creative word. I wanna read for you again, verse four, the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in all of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So what God says is, and all that is, is because of what God has said. When, when he speaks, what he speaks becomes reality. And, and that is why there is such a connection here between the word of God and the work of God. God does no work in this world apart from his word. And, and this is something that we should, I think, slow down and think about. The, the word of God in connection to his work. Now, there are times when the Bible will speak 
of God's hands. Like in Psalm 8, Psalm 8 is a psalm about humanity and creation. And David says there to God, you have given him, speaking of man, you have given him dominion over the work of your hands. Then in Isaiah 42, verse 5, it speaks of God you know, stretching out the heavens, and it implies that God does that with his hands. We, we see this kind of talking in the Bible about God and his hands, but we know that God the Father, he doesn't really have hands. This, this kind of talking, this, this way of language is what you would call an anthropomorphism, right? It's, it's metaphorical. It happened, we talk, it's about God. There's, uh, in the Psalms, we, we read about the trees clapping their hands. The trees don't have hands, but it's, it's metaphorical. It is there to help us imagine God and his activity. So we see everything in the world. And if we were outside right now at, at Spooner Park, I'd be using all the props around us. So you got to imagine there's some trees. We look around at the scenery of God's creation. We see everything around us and we can imagine that God's hands have been at work. And I think that's, it's good to do that. The Bible does that. It's good to do that. But I think an even better way to think about all the things that we see in creation is to think that these things are here because of God's words. For God spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Everything you see in creation is here, is there because God spoke it. Every work of God comes by the word of God and that that helps us, that way of thinking helps us make sense of verse four. Verse four, there are two lines and the two lines are basically repetitions of one another. The first line, the word of Yahweh is upright. The word of Yahweh is upright, trustworthy, good. The second line, the work, his, all his work is done in faithfulness, trustworthy, good. The word of God and the work of God trustworthy and good, and all of it comes from the heart of God. Now, this is important, I think, for us in verse 5, that we see this mention of God's love, okay, his affections, God's heart. These are not merely facts about God that we find in Psalm 33, but this, we are told what God loves. He loves righteousness. He loves justice. God affectionately speaks upright words. He delights, he delights to do all his work in faithfulness. That means that there's nothing in creation that is arbitrary. We cannot look at a tree. Now imagine we're at, you know, in, at Spooner, there's a tree right here. My kids are sitting under it usually. We, we cannot look at a tree, any tree, and think that God said about that tree, meh, tree. Or, or anything. Somehow, Every tree in creation is an expression of God's faithfulness and of his love for righteousness and justice that goes for every tree, every squirrel, every blade of grass, all his work 
Everything about creation is done in faithfulness. And we need this kind of God-entranced vision of the world because this is reality. This is the way things really are. And when we understand creation this way, when we understand the world around us in this way, we will be able to live in the reality of verse five. The whole earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. The whole earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, so at the dinner table this, this past week, um, I asked the kids, these guys right here, you guys remember this at the dinner table? I said, guys, after dinner, I opened the Bible. I said, hey, we'll start with a question here. Tell me, what is the world full of? What's the world full of? That was my question. I asked, I asked the kids, kids, what feels the, what, what feels the world? What's the world full of? And, and they said in their, in their best theological astuteness, first answer, sin. And I said, that's right. You're right. What else though? Like what else? Like what else? Like what, what is the world full of? And then in their, in their best, like cultural astuteness, what of them said, Coronavirus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what else? Tell me what else. Like, what else is the world, you know, what is the world full of? And they said, animals, yes. You know, they, they said, people, yes. The world is full of people. And, and they kept saying all kinds of right answers. There are all kinds of right, all, air, you know, all kinds of right answers for what the world is full of. But then I opened here in Psalm 33, verse 5, and I read, I read verse 5 to them. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. The earth is full of a lot of things, right? A lot of things. But right here, God tells us that the earth is full of his love, his steadfast love. And I don't think the steadfast love of the Lord, I don't think that is one right answer among a bunch of right answers, but I think that this is the main right answer. This is the, the main right answer that transforms, that transcends every other answer. Because yes, the world is broken and the world is broken. The world has, the world has viruses. We know the world is under the curse of sin. The curse of sin. But where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so the main message of the sun, the main message of the clouds, the main message of the wind, the main message is that God loves his people and that he loves his people so much that even in the brokenness, like even amid all the filth of this sin-cursed world, his love for his people shines through and his love for his people will overcome everything. Do you know, do you know the miracle that it is that we can see any beauty in this world? The miracle that it is that we can see any beauty in this sin-cursed, broken 
world. The only way we can is because of God's steadfast love, because God's steadfast love overcomes, because God's steadfast love is the main message, because what the earth is mainly full of is the steadfast love of the Lord. That is the air we breathe. And so this is what I I want this truth to do for us. This is very practical and and this is what I want us to, to do for us. We're going to walk outside here and go on with our lives in just a little bit. And the next time you're outside and you feel a breeze, when you feel the wind, I want you to know that breeze is not just a breeze, but the breeze that you feel, the air all around you is full of the steadfast love of Yahweh. And when you feel it, when the breeze touches your skin, it has come to you straight from the heart of God because the earth is full of his steadfast love. It has come to you, the breeze that you feel, the breeze that we so often take for granted, the breeze that we feel when it touches us, it has come to us straight from the heart of God who does everything that he does in faithfulness. There's a way we should think and feel when it comes to breezes and sunshine. The earth is full of the steadfast love of God. Yahweh loves his people. The earth is mainly full of that. Number two, sing praise to God because of his mighty wisdom. Look at verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Bible, you know, talks a lot about the wisdom of God. We, we see that especially in the book of Psalms. We see that in, in books like Job. Um, but there's something important I want us to see and understand about the wisdom of God and how it's used in the Bible. A lot of times when, when God's wisdom is referred to, it's in a, a, a competitive context, okay? It's, it's in a context of, of comparison and competition. That's why I, I don't think, excuse me, I don't think we call it just wisdom, but we call it mighty wisdom or conquering wisdom or God's triumphant wisdom. To, to say that God is wise does it? We're not just saying that God is smart or that God is good at making decisions, but to say that God is wise, it means that we're saying we understand his way, God's way of doing things is the right way that will last. And ultimately, that means that God's wisdom is going to topple every other pseudo wisdom of this world. And we see that here in Psalm 33. God brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. The best plans of the peoples are always vulnerable to God's overcoming will. There may be in the world a room full of the brightest minds ever. Imagine that scene. Imagine right now there's a room and a big long table and around that table sit the smartest human beings to ever live. And they're sitting around that table and these brilliant humans, geniuses, they are putting their heads together 
and they are making a plan. Whatever plan that they make, whatever they come up with and and whatever it is that they start executing, maybe it takes some two years of thinking and deliberation and planning and they start to execute this plan. Whatever it is, God can say, swipe, and it's over. It's done. It doesn't work. God can do that. He, he has the ability to bring the counsel of the nations to nothing. And God would do that, not because he is cruel, but because he has something better. And this is where I think it's really important again for us to see the mention of God's heart in verse 11. Verse 11 says, the counsel of Yahweh stands forever. That is to say, the plans of his heart to all generations. The wisdom of God that conquers every other wisdom the conquering triumphant wisdom of God that conquers every other wisdom is wisdom from the heart of God. And so what then is the heart of God? We have to know the heart of God in order for this to make sense for us. So, so what do you think about the heart of God? You know, what, what you think about the heart of God is the largest driving force in your life. It's the most important thing you think, what you think about the heart of God. And a lot of times what we think about the heart of God is understated. It's subtle. It's buried deep in the way we think and operate, but it's there. I want you to know it's there. So I ask you, I want to ask you again, what do you think when you think about the heart of God? What is the heart of God? Well, how you would answer that question is going to determine whether or not you believe verse 11 to be a comfort or to be a threat. The good news is that the Bible doesn't leave us to wonder about the heart of God. The Bible tells us and stated very clearly, I mean, spelled out for us in Exodus 34, verse 6. He's Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the heart of God. That's who God is most essentially. God's wisdom always stands, always. And ultimately his wisdom from his heart is always only for the good of his people. Always only for the good of his people. This is why Charles Spurgeon A famous quote from Spurgeon, God is too good to be unkind. God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. God is too wise to be mistaken. So when we cannot trace his hand, we trust his heart. And I realize that I'm saying that in the context, in the middle of, of 
a lot of frustrated plans. Just, just to get an idea. How many of you, I want to see a raise of hands here. Raise your hand if something has not gone the way you planned in 2020. A few of you, okay. Yeah. I want you to know the wisdom of God never gets frustrated. Never. The wisdom of God is always only for the good of his people. And so I want you to receive this. Where you are in the midst of our plans turned upside down and still unpredictable and confusing, I want you to know you can trust the plans of God's heart. His wisdom is for your good. Third and final point, uh, sing praise to God because of his, his sovereign care. I really like this point. Look at verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all the children of the man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Now, before anything else here, I I want you to notice the sovereignty of God in these verses. Verse 13 begins by telling us that God looks down from heaven and he sees humanity. And there's a repetition here that's intentional. I want you to notice it. God sees all the children of man. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Four times here, the word all is repeated because this Psalm wants us to know the sovereign pervasiveness of God's sight. God sees everything. There is nothing at all in this world hidden from the eyes of God. One way to say, this is one way to say it. There is nothing about your life that is not God's business. He sees everything. There is nothing about your life that is not his business. That is verses 13 to 15. God sees everything about everybody. And look, let's be honest, that, that might be troubling to us. Maybe, maybe you've got things in your life that you don't want God to see. Maybe there are things in your life that you would rather be hidden. What do we do about that? First thing, repent. You can turn from the sin and turn to God. Repent, that's the first thing. Second thing, again, this is where, and I think this is foundational. This is what leads us to repentance. We have to know the heart of God behind the eyes that see everything about us. So God sees everything about you. But do you know the heart of God behind the eyes that see everything about you? It's interesting to me, verse 16, there's a transition. The transition goes from God seeing everything to then the theme of false 
hope. The, the psalmist goes from talking about how God sees everything about you to then, to then to he describes all the things that will not save you. Isn't that interesting? He describes all the things that God can see about you. God sees everything. And then immediately talks about how nothing out there is going to save you. Not a great army, not great strength, not a great war horse. These are basically, I think these are three different categories, associations, abilities, and assets. In the ancient world, this meant armies, strength, and horses. Today, it looks different, but it's the same things at heart. And our propensity as sinful humans is to hope in these things for salvation. So they are appropriately called false hopes. Good things. These are good things. But good things, no doubt, are not saviors. Good things become false hopes when we hope in them for salvation. Any association you can surround yourself with, any ability you can muster up, any kind of asset you can procure, they will not save you from the sin that God sees when he sees all of you. That's the message here through verse 17. That's the message through verse 17. Then verse 18. Verse 18. Behold, the eyes of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Now, this is, this is vital information when it comes to the sovereign pervasiveness of God's sight. It's good to know this. God absolutely sees everything. He sees all of us. But for those of us who fear him, for those of us who, who trust in him, for those of us who hope in his steadfast love, God's sight of us is not for scrutiny and judgment, but his sight of us is for our care. The, the eye of Yahweh on you is because he's looking after you. He's looking over you. As verse 19 says, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. In other words, God sees everything about you, Christian, and his will and seeing everything about you. God keeping his eye on you, he keeps his eye on you. His keeping his eye on you is so that he will rescue you from eternal suffering and preserve you through present suffering. That's why he keeps his eye on you. All of God's sovereignty, all of his sovereign vision is harnessed for your care. And we see this in Psalm 33. We see more than this in Psalm 33, but ultimately we see this in the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, all the attributes about God that we find in Psalm 33 are most vividly seen in the person and work of Jesus the creative word of God, the, the mighty wisdom of God, the sovereign care of God. Jesus is the creative word of God made flesh who could stop the winds and waves by speaking. Jesus is the mighty wisdom of God who shames the wisdom of this world. 1 Corinthians 1. Jesus is the sovereign care of God for us who in seeing all of us, he loves us and he loves us so much so that everything about us that is broken, Jesus died to make whole. 
Every wound in us, Jesus died to heal. All the ways that, that, that we have sinned against Jesus, he died to forgive. Jesus sees you now not just as who you are, but he sees you as who you will be when he completes the good work that he began in you. And so I want to tell you something, all right? I want to tell you something, and I want to qualify this very carefully. So give me a minute, okay, to set this up. I do not believe in self-help gobbledygook, okay? I, I do not believe that we should say untrue things to make people feel better because ultimately it doesn't help anybody, okay? Truth and love have to be congruent. What I'm about to say to you has all kinds of theological freight behind it. There's a, there's a weight, there's a theological weight to what I'm about to say. Also, what I'm about to say, it may be something you've never heard before. It's most likely something that you're going to have a hard time believing. But also, I think this is something that maybe you're here this morning because you need to hear this. This might be the, the most important thing you hear today. And maybe you're here because this is for you. Here it is. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, which means if you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the fulfillment of all God's promises to you, if you renounce Satan and all his works and in all his ways, if you intend with God's help to obey Jesus and to follow him as your Lord, Savior, and treasure, if you are a Christian, I want you to know, Christian, that when Jesus looks at you and sees all of you, he likes what he sees. He likes what he sees. Because he loves you. Because he cares for you. He, he died for you. He is for you. And that's why we can trust him. What a help Jesus is. What a shield Jesus is. Our hearts are glad in him. And so we come to this table and we come to this table each week together as those who belong to Jesus and we come here to give him thanks. Uh, Pastor Nick's gonna come and, and we're gonna sing together or he's gonna sing and we're gonna sing too uh, in the appropriate ways. Um, but as we sing, I, I want you Remember the death of Jesus. Remember the great love 
of Jesus for you. And rest in that. Rest in that. And sing them praise. We're going to ask as we've been doing, as Nick starts to play, you can come up, one person from each uh, household or however, and take one of those. We have plenty of these, so if they get gone, we can, we can replace it. So as, as a Pastor Nick begins to play, I want to invite you to come. Then I'll come back up and we'll eat and drink together. Uh, his body is the true bread. Uh, his blood is the true drink.